Hey guys, this is Anand Chippy from Anantech. This is the official Anantech podcast, episode seven. And joining us again, we have Brian Klug. Hey guys. And Dr. Ian Cutris. Hey, what's up? So last week, um, Ian kind of left us with homework and he was talking about how awesome Borderlands 2 was um, and how great NVIDIA's physics implementation is in it. Now, I have to admit, I didn't get a chance to build a new gaming PC and, and try it with NVIDIA, but I did play the game for a little bit. Um, I, I, you know, the, the style, and this is the first experience I've ever had with Borderlands. Like, all my pr- friends played Borderlands 1. Um, everyone in the world seems to love the game. Visually, like, I, I, it's interesting, and I think it's a, a good way of hiding kind of not having the most photorealistic effects and things, but I'm not totally sold on it yet. Now, perhaps that'll change. Like, I played it on a very, very low-end system, so perhaps that'll change when I kind of crank everything up. Um, Ian, I'm curious, what are your thoughts? Like, is, is that a, a visual style that you prefer versus, like, the kind of ultra-realistic stuff? It's just something different that's in the marketplace. I mean, we've all played our Call of Duties and our Halos, and even if it is in sort of a pseudo-science fiction future reality, I think having something slightly more comical at the end of the day, it's, it's something different that I enjoy gaming with. And the um, the robot guy, uh, Clanky, what's his name? Claptrap. Uh, Claptrap. He's annoying. And maybe because maybe it's like I don't have the like the fondness for him because I didn't play the first one. But I feel like he's a worse version of, you know, the the robot in Portal, right? Like I, mean, oh, I was just thinking that. Or, yeah. or, or, or Navi in um in uh, Zelda. Yes. See, yeah. okay, so my issue with Zelda games, like they were great when I was a kid. Um but I'm tired of finding the boomerang over and over again, right? Like, I just... I get, This is, like, more of a complaint against Nintendo in general. Like, I'm, I'm tired of saving the princess for, like, 30 years now. Like, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. And it feels like that's all I ever get from, like, the really good first-party games from them. Um, I feel you're like they, saying, they're in this... You're saying that... Um, you're saying that Claptrap is like Wheatley. Yeah, yes. But, but like, not as good as Wheatley. Like, I, I liked Wheatley huh. more. Um, well, you don't have to worry. Claptrap doesn't uh, bother you for much of the game, only the initial bit. Yeah, so that, that's why, like, it's still too early for me to have a verdict here. Like, uh, uh, I've, the beginning is just really slow, um, and, and I've made it, maybe made it, like, 30 minutes beyond the slowness of the beginning. So I, I think there's, uh, like, right now, I would love to actually sit down and play it again, which, to me, is a, a sign of, you know, hey, this game could be interesting. Um, cause there's some games I play for an hour, hour and a half and I'm like, I just, I don't want to touch this ever again. Um, but this, I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking, is there any way I can finish my work and, and play it? Uh, which I think is a good initial sign. Um, but when you get to about two to three hours in and you hit the main portal city in the game, um, it starts opening up a lot from there. Like okay, cool. You, you'll go and do a mission in a map and the mission will take say 20 minutes and you'll think that the map's huge. But then you have to come back to it two, three, four times, and you realize that there's a million different other areas of the map that you've never explored. Okay. Yeah, see, I'm in this, like, the, the kind of desolate Iceland that you wake up in, and it's fine, uh, but there's just, things are really slow. Like, I'm glad it didn't really take me through too much of a tutorial, but there's so much, like, following Claptrap around and, you know, yeah. attacking, like, one or two people. 
the the initial two to three hours that is the tutorial. Yeah. Um, um. If you ever played the first one, um, the first one was a lot quicker going through the story. I felt personally. Um, I'm playing the second one. I'm doing a lot of the story mission, a lot of the side missions rather than the story missions. So twenty hours in and level twenty is slower than I would have anticipated. But um, I'm picking up stuff that I find really good in game, like uh, grenades that home into the enemy and then heal you back. So they ex- so they explode in the enemy's face, take off health, and then bring it back to you to heal you up. That sounds sort like of a vampiric good grenades. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. So you you bring up an interesting point. What is your? I'm curious, both of you. What's your philosophy on side quests? Um, do all of I, them. Really? You must um, do and, all of them. <laughs> They, 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 I, I came across this as an issue in the first one, in the first Borderlands, because the whole idea about Borderlands is you do one playthrough normally, and then you do a harder version playthrough where you get all the very nice gear which you can play online with your friends. If you spend all your time doing the side quests in the first playthrough, then you miss them all out on the second playthrough because there's no point in doing them because you've already done them, you know about the story that side. Um, so... So looking, somewhat related... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, looking back on it, I think I would have preferred to just blitz through the first playthrough, the story, and then uh, on the second playthrough do the side missions because then they'd be harder. So so huh. related question, what's your philosophy on multiple playthroughs of a game? Like, Ian, you're clearly okay with that. Brian? Uh, so I'm... First, I have to preface this by saying that apparently I'm bad at homework now. <laughs> Because I, I didn't get a chance to play it. The only thing that I played since we've last spoken was actually Free Space and Free Space 2 again. Because I was feeling nostalgic. And like every once in a while I just needed to play those. But I haven't I haven't played Borderlands 2 yet. I'm kinda waiting for the the chatter to die down a little bit and then I'm gonna give it give it a shot. But no. I mean I, I played the first one, but like I said, I never finished it. You know, like I haven't finished Skyrim either. So I think that's my philosophy on all the that type of game is that I don't want to complete the main quest because then yes. I feel like I'm doing work and I have to finish it in one sitting type thing. Whereas if I do little side quests, then it's much easier to break it up and then I can pull myself away from it. Otherwise, then it just becomes like, oh, my gosh, I need to like I'm, I'm going to like completely just put off all my other things that I need to do. And it's like 48 hours later. And oh, God, what, what did I what have I done? <laughs> so you you bring up an interesting so skyrim for me is like uh oblivion i loved i never played any of the other elder scrolls games but i i think i loved it for different reasons than most people like it's a kind of my ideal game is a game where i can just be a total sociopath in the game right like because i don't so you love the dark brotherhood quest yes well that was my favorite yeah what i what i did in the first when i played oblivion for the longest time, like, I'd, I'd never played a game like this before. I mean, I'd played, like, one... I played Final Fantasy VII. I've played our uh, role-playing games before, but I'd never played an Elder Scrolls game. And I, I was the cat thing, the Khajiit or whatever. Um, and I discovered you could break into people's houses. And then I could discover that you could eat their produce. So I just went around, and that's all I did. Like, I would just be a naked cat breaking into people's houses and eating their food. And I just thought this was, like, the most hilarious thing ever. And then eventually I learned that like you could do stuff with the food, like there was a productive reason for it to be there. But (laughs) if I had an open world game where people would react normally to me being a giant unclothed cat 
breaking into your house and eating your watermelon. And like there was actual reaction, like, you know, what would you do, Brian, if someone broke into your house, looked like a cat and ate your watermelon? Like, how would you respond? And what are the next 10 steps? That would be my ideal game, right? Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> a, a world where you could just test human responses to totally bizarre, I guess, situations. Um, so that's how I play the Skyrim and Oblivion games, right? Like I, uh, in Oblivion, I never touched the main quest. I, I didn't even go to, um, what is the first town you're supposed to go to in that game? I don't remember it at all. Played it so long ago. Yeah, there's yeah, that the first town. Dumb, those dumb Oblivion gates that were just like, yeah. anytime I got near, I was like, turned 180 and just walked <laughs> away. Oh, they they so, were fun. I never went to the first gate, so no other gates appeared. I was like, that's stupid. I'm not doing that. I'm going to go like basically rob and murder a lot of people. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's what I did for the whole game. And then Skyrim was just more of that. Um, the, the the thing about Oblivion is um, you only leveled up when you went to sleep. So if oh, you, that's right, yeah. So, so if you went through the game and you never went to... I think you had to go to sleep once as part of the quest. You could complete the game at level two. So you'd have, like, all these uber weapons, but all the enemies would be really, really easy to kill. I mean, um, I played they Oblivion... They scaled, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I played Oblivion when I was going through my gamer score phase. The Xbox 360 has a gamer score system. I was playing everything in order to get gamer score. And so Oblivion, if I remember correctly, took me 25 hours to get all the gamer score for the main quest, and then another six hours for the expansion. Wow. See, I never got addicted to gamer score buffing or whatever. I guess I guess I lied. I played another game. I played um played Halo 2 and Halo and Halo 3 with some friends. I loved Halo 2 online. Yeah, simply because that was fun. When, you know, Halo 2, that was the last game where everyone had to listen to you talk, right? Yeah. So like well, that was the it was other still team novel. Yeah, exactly. The other team couldn't like not hear you right you just you could make there was so much trash talking that would happen and and it became like an art form right like that me and my friends we would just play it and and it was just how could you get the other team so demoralized that part of their loss would be because of just the intense amount of just crap talk that was coming into their ears at all times and halo 3 they fixed that right like you you had to opt in i guess or like you could only talk to your teammates and maybe you could occasionally hear the other team. Um, Between rounds. But, yes. But Halo 2 was just obnoxious. It was just all time. It, it, everybody should imagine uh, Mr. Shimpy here, aged 18, headset on. <laughs> Trash talking everybody Trash. online. <laughs> while, 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 while trying to build up a, uh, a reputable tech website. Yes. It's, so I hope look, you weren't I playing a... as a non-Shimpy on your Xbox Live gamer tag. No. No, I never play as that. This was a um, nod. This was like anonymous anod. Yes. And then Imperium's I just, I, not a non-shimpy. <laughs> my, my Xbox gamer tag is just other editors for other websites. Oh, <laughs> that's, see? I'm not that clever. Um, no, it's, it's yeah. I, actually, it's probably more embarrassing, right? Like, I was not definitely not 18 when I was playing Halo 2. When did that come out? I was in my 20s. I, like, I'm way older than I should have been for that to be my form of entertainment. Yeah, like that's, you know, the voice chat thing should be kind of old hat. I mean, it, it sort of was, at least for PC players. Yes. But um, for, for the console, it was new and novel. Yes. I, I have issues with console voice chat systems. 
um, mainly because of uh, the sheer number of people who want to ruin your day as you play yeah. a game. I just mute everybody. Like, I have no voice enabled at all. It's just off. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what I end up doing now. Uh, uh, I, I, you get so much stick if you're, if you're different, if your voice is different. My British accent got played on quite a lot. Yes. Um, or if, if there just happens to be a girl in the game. Everybody, just, everybody <laughs> yeah. just turn. Everybody else just turns into the misogynist. Yes. <laughs> which, no, which, is which, that which an is archetype? It's, it's 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 really unfair. I think you know, as as we've grown up, we obviously understand that. Yeah, there is some cajoling involved in online gameplay. But when you come up against a thirteen-year-old who's using four-letter swear words left and right, cussing every chance he can get, I know it makes it less fun. That's why I try and avoid console multiplayer games now. Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, it it only works, I think, if uh, I, I don't know. It's it's got to be everyone's got to have to be at the same page, right? And and that's difficult to ensure, um, unfortunately. It's but, okay. Uh, you just turn voice off. That's what I do. Yeah, we we um as part of our university computer society, we organized sort of uh, seven eight people up on Halo Three all at once, so we'd all get into a group. And we'd, because so, we were seven, eight people, we'd all be on the same side. And that was fun. You know, spend a good couple of hours against, you know, other pairs and triples all forming their team of eights. We lost most of the time, though, which was, um, that was demoralizing. <laughs> <laughs> you played yeah, so win, you just apparently. imagine being demoralized by a loss and being demoralized by me making fun of you as well. <laughs> That's that, and that was my Halo 2 experience. <laughs> Then, then you um, were you reveled when other people rage quit and just unplugged their console. Yes, like just that yanked used to the Ethernet a lot. cable out. Oh, okay. Yeah, that used to happen a lot. It was it was good. Well, um, well, with with Halo Two, did you ever have guys have um, people controlling the uh, connection in and out who was standby host? hacking? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that we never did happens. that, but it was really annoying when people did. So, so whenever a game comes out, I'm always a big fan of having. Um, delocalized hosts you know by the games company rather than individualized people hosting the game yeah match made games with the host advantage is just nonsense but i mean that's how that's the xbox live architecture the vast majority of the time well no it it happened with one of the call of duty games on pc as well yeah well those are I, i believe the ones that are match made and if you don't go search dedicated yeah you know after um what is it after modern warfare 2 or was, uh, it was modern warfare 2 that started that i forget i could find it but it's, it's the minute that you do that and you don't have dedicated servers is i think the minute where you lose your game to clan gaming clan gaming goes out the window if they can't have an independent host so apparently they use they use boxes that pull host somehow like they reset them or they do like what I do and have a faster hard drive. <laughs> you know? Like I said, I put in the 7200 RPM drive and it pulls hosts more often. Yeah. See, the, but, the right way, to, if you could only legitimately hack an SSD in there, that would be perfect. I know, right? This is my <laughs> wish for the next Xbox, is that you need, you need to use all of your contacts and on to get them to like let us put in a solid-state drive, because then we'll always I, be winning. Like It'll just <laughs> never stop. I mean, I'm pretty sure the next Xbox will be uh, all solid state at this point. Really? That'd be good. I mean, 
I don't think they'll do a hard drive, right? Like, it's just... I, maybe they would. I, I don't know. So, um, a combination with caching. Ugh. Um, <laughs> it's... I'm sorry. It's just the... It's it's well, well, uh, well, well, think about it. With the Xbox 360 now, you copy games from your disc onto your hard drive. You still have to have the disc in the box to play the game, uh, just so it uh, loads quicker. If the minute you're putting solid-state drive, you're sort of limited within your $400 budget. Yeah, to exactly. A, to, 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 under, to a 256 gig SSD. Whereas if you could put in a 64 gig SSD and a one terabyte hard drive... That's true. I, would I mean, say that's they'd the... probably just go for a one terabyte hard drive now. Yeah, that's the ideal way to do it, right? To have, I mean, kind of how we all build our PCs, right? Fast solid state storage plus, you know, big massive mechanical storage. But like at the low end of the Xbox consoles, they still only come with what four gigs of NAND, right? That's it. There's no hard drive yeah. in the box. Period. Yeah, the arcade models. Yeah, yeah. Um... which is weird because um, some XBLA games are now what two gigabytes. That's oh, the, obviously it's pushing. I think that's the max size, isn't it? It well, when it was released, it was fifty meg. Then they pushed it up to a hundred, and now it's up to two gig. I know I on the iPhone the max app size is two gigs now. Is 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 that direct download from the app store, or does that include op, you know the downloads that you can get from the servers? Because direct download, yeah. Because on Android, you'll down you can download like say a golf a three D golfing game. You know, it's it's a 10 meg download, but then it downloads another gigabyte from the servers. So I thought most of the time when you see that happen, that's actually because they're they're tailoring the download to what um, texture compression your device supports. You know, because on iOS, right, it's just all PVR, TC, but on Android, it can be like any number of things. You know, that's what I thought it was. All I know is that I enjoy my very fast London internet connection at that point. <laughs> Isn't it supposed to be ETC? Isn't it ETC now? I know that this there, there's a variety of different texture compression methods and that this has been like a pain point for OpenGL ES for a while, and that's why you see all these different texture packs. Yes. Well, it's I mean, it's the problem we all had in the early days of dedicated PC GPUs as well, right? Like that you just had to have kind of... Uh, custom code paths for a lot of the uh, the discrete players at the time. But I, I think we're quickly heading towards consolidation on the GPU side as well as on the SOC side. Um, we saw the... I, I know this isn't on the outline, but, but TI's whole announcement that they're kind of defocusing... Um, oh, we should have talked about that. We should... That should have been on the outline. There's always yeah. these things that I think of, but they don't make it on. So, you know? so TI if, announced If we that, just talked forever, it would be like eight hours. <laughs> Exactly. Um, no, so, so TI announced that, if, if you didn't follow it, that they're um, uh, going to focus their efforts elsewhere, not necessarily aggressively pursuing the smartphone and tablet SOC market, um, which I feel like a few podcasts ago, we talked about consolidation and how, uh, you know, we've got six or so players in the uh, mobile SOC space, and, and TI was the one that we said, they don't necessarily have the strongest reason for being here. Um, and if you look at all of TI's wins, they've all been like very, very low cost plays. They've, they've won all the Amazon business, but that's not at $30 a chip, right? If it was $30 a chip, Qualcomm would have won it. Um, and even well, from what I hear long-term, they're not, uh, uh, they didn't win the thing after the, the current series of Kindle fires. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, everybody knows that, like, on a high, pers- high level, TI is becoming an analog company. Like, they made that executive decision a while ago to do to go for after go after analog with the you know the national acquisition and all of that stuff and the, there have been these rumblings forever so when i saw that report i was like what's new here there's like this isn't news like what, what's the news you yeah, know and then everybody was like it's... oh they're not going to release omap 5 which is just obviously not true at all yeah like there's going to well, be omap like, 5 so i think the the concern there was uh they're not going to have a launch windows rt platform are they well they used to have 4470 what is that has that gone away i mean i don't know what design wins that had didn't someone weren't they in was it hp or someone right and and then they said that uh that ati couldn't yeah that that they couldn't meet the the schedule or whatever so they're not going to be present at launch um so I, i i don't know i mean i really like the ti guys i think they've always like kind of built decent socs but uh, consolidation's got to happen. Been reliable, mm-hmm. you know. Like they've been around forever. OMAP three was around forever. OMAP four, still, you know, we see in a lot of devices. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going back even further, OMAP, you know, OMAP two, and then there's this trickle down that takes place. You know, that I don't think a lot of people fully appreciate. It's you know, and and that the SOCs that are sort of in the smartphone realm make their way into these other applications you know oh yeah i mean totally at some point we're gonna have cortex a15 class hardware in toasters and stuff right like that's <laughs> yeah no there's like design reuse you yes. know like the nest has basically an omap 3 inside you know like it's analogous the um, yes the sitara am37x just literally is an omap 3 and you like you can buy one with the SGX graphics block either fused off or not. So, I mean, I've always wondered what what happens to that business, and I think what happens is that they put more of the emphasis on this sort of the trickle down applications that go into industrial or things that no one really talks about versus the smartphone. But it's you... never going to go away. And and TI's value add has always been the analog stuff around the edges, like. You know their PMIC. You know, like even Nvidia uses their PMIC. I believe a lot. Like the the One X. You see, there's like TI all around the edges. Yeah. You know, because Nvidia just they don't have they don't have that design team yet. Do all the analog stuff. So I I think that you know probably this move makes sense since that's always been their biggest you know strength. Um, Brian, so for for people who don't know. Um, what's what's the role of a PMIC in uh, in a mobile platform? Um, so well, PMIC stands for Power Management IC, and um, this this does things like you know managing charging, does things like you know all the vibration controllers, LEDs, all the housekeeping, of course stuff like waking the waking the phone up, you know managing all of its performance states. Um, you know, the PMIC is just like a very important thing. You know, it manages all the different voltage planes. Uh, it does it does all that stuff, you know, DC to DC. How do you select whether I'm going to, you know, draw from the battery versus USB power versus maybe I have another, you know, like on some of these tablets, you have USB and then you also have like a five volt DC or, or I'm sorry, even higher voltage. You know, how do you do your... Um, 
you know, pa- you know, battery charging is a big deal. I talk a lot, you know, like everybody's always like, they have these weird expectations about battery charging, you know, like I need to calibrate my battery type thing. Well, I mean, yeah. nobody really knows how that works or they don't talk about it a lot. So that's all done on the PMIC. And so this is a really important part that doesn't get talked about a lot or it's maybe misunderstood. So there's all these things on there, but yeah, it manages the DVFS, you know, voltage and frequency scaling. All that stuff is on the PMIC. Long term, though, doesn't that PMIC just get integrated into the SOC? You know, it could, but I mean, I feel like a lot of a lot of this is still analog, and it's a different different process. There are different things that need to be there. You know, like some of them have magnetics. You know, this is I believe this is also at the a different different foundry process entirely versus the logic. I mean, but it could be a multi chip package. I don't I don't think you've seen a lot of people do that though. Like even the baseband has its own PMIC. You know, uh, even when you're everything has its own little PMIC, it ends up yeah. looking like. And also, you know, you see a lot of things like interrupts, you know, when you need to wake up, that's all done there. You know, like there'll be another another core entirely or you know like I'm waving my hands, but another logic block that's sort of watching over everything like a watchdog. And that's what wakes up, you know, and tells the thing I need to get out of deep sleep and into one of these active states. So that's all, all over on the PMIC. I mean, I guess in the future it could be, but right now it isn't. Yeah, I gotcha. Um, so switching gears a little bit, kind of SOC related, but uh, in a different space. Um, last week we had kind of a weird launch from AMD. It was the unofficial launch of trinity's desktop uh trinity being the uh new second generation i guess of of amd's mainstream um apu which is the cpu and gpu all on a single integrated monolithic die um so trinity launched in notebooks uh back in june i believe and AMD purposefully delayed the desktop launch because they had so many of the previous parts of, of Lano um, in the market. So their whole thing was, let's just get all of these parts sold and, and kind of out of the channel, and, and we'll just delay the desktop launch and, until all that's done so, so we don't totally cannibalize sales there. Um, and Ian, you also have a Trinity system, right? AMD got you all of that? Um, yeah, it arrived yesterday. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, so, had you? <laughs> never mind. You you haven't had any time to play around with Trinity then. I'm assuming, or did you get a chance before then? Um, um, I've I've had a play. Um, that's about as much as I can say right now. Okay, I gotcha. Um, so let's let's go over kind of Trinity at a high level. Um, so Trinity is one of those difficult situations, right, where uh, you don't get a process node advantage, so it's still 32 nanometer um, SOI at Global Foundries. Same thing as Lano, but you have to improve performance. Um, it's a dramatic shift on the CPU architecture side, so you go from Stars cores to pile driver based cores, so that's second generation bulldozer, um, and you actually go from having four discrete kind of old school K8 derivative x86 cores to up to two pile driver modules. Each module has the funky. Uh, dual integer cores with a shared floating point unit um so you kind of get uh in heavily threaded integer tasks you get better performance than a dual core uh machine but in a lot of workloads it's it's still kind of behaves more like a a traditional dual core um in terms of performance uh so you have that and you have that paired with a uh 
VLU W uh, VLIW um, four, so a, a four component um, architecture, so a Cayman derivative on the GPU side uh, versus the old uh, five way uh, VLIWs um, from the the Lano and the the previous architectures. Um, so you actually have a reduction in overall number of GPU cores, uh, but suppose, uh, you know the theory is that you get an overall boost in efficiency. Uh, GPU also runs at a much higher clock speed. Uh, CPU cores obviously run at a much higher clock speed as well, but they uh, you go to that move to bulldozer and pile driver, which decreases IPC in order to hit clock speed. So uh, don't be too fooled by the fact that these things turbo up to like 4.2 gigahertz. Um, the end result is if you're comparing Trinity versus Lano. On average, in terms of uh, graphics performance, you're looking at about a 15% gain uh, over kind of the top-end Lano versus the top-end Trinity desktop. Uh, the big news right now is that you can go uh, to one of the like die-harvested Trinity parts, the one right below it, uh, and get fairly similar, if not a little better performance than, than la- uh, last year's you know, kind of high-end Lano part. Um, but, but clearly evolutionary improvement in GPU performance there. If you want to compare versus Ivy Bridge, you know, the, the gap is pretty good um, on the graphics side. Uh, I'd say some of the minimum gaps are, are down in the 20-ish percent range, maybe a bit less depending on the application. Um, and, and in some cases, you get, you know, more than double the performance of, of Intel's HD 4000. Uh, you know, what, it's, it's... Sorry, go ahead. What, what's the percentage of the die in Trinity that is the GPU versus the Ivy Bridge percentage, which is the GPU? Um, I think AMD is actually 50-50. Right. Uh, yeah, it looks 50-50. And, yeah, and, and Intel, uh, they are more like 30% or so of their die is GPU. So so do you think if if Intel changed their uh, design to a more 50-50, they'd be competitive? Or is the uh, AMD GPU side st- still better, you know, in terms of efficiency? Um. So here's what we do know, right? Uh, two things happen over the next two years. Haswell, uh, we get, you know, in, in a desktop configuration, we get a, uh, up to a 2x increase in, in performance compared, compared to Ivy Bridge. Um, I don't know what the die split is on Haswell yet, but... What's, what's, do we know anything about EUs? Uh, yeah, so Intel was kind of clever at IDF. They said Haswell GT3 has twice the number of EUs of Haswell GT2, but they didn't define how many EUs are in Haswell GT2. Uh, I think the number that we've been staying publicly is 40 EUs um, in, in GT3. Um, 40 and, EUs? Yes. And I don't know... Uh, now, obviously, these things run at, at you know reasonably high clock speeds, um, and I don't know if that 2x claim is for the gt3 part with embedded dram or not um that that part's not entirely clear um i'm assuming it is so you're looking at you know 2x ivy bridge at the high end in a desktop configuration um in an ultrabook configuration you only get another like 30 percent boost there um so so it's it's uh it really depends on on how much available power you have um but that actually brings that would bring intel up to parity with trinity now obviously that's going to be you know let's say six to nine months or more than that. It'll be at least nine months from Trinity launch before we get that. Uh, so obviously AMD will have a steamroller based APU at that point with presumably a, a beefier GPU as well. Um, and then go out one more year, you get Broadwell, you get a significant re-architecting of the graphics core. Um, 
And, and I think that's when we start having to kind of figure out how efficient Intel is on the GPU side. Uh, in short, I think it's, it's tough to say. I, I think, you know, Intel is able to hit Trinity-level performance. Um, at, at least that's, that's the current goal. Um, whether they'll ever, ever actually get into, like, a uh, stop competing in the good enough space and, and actually surpass AMD, that's, that's still unknown at this point. Is it possible that they could release um, a dual-core part with beefiest graphics on Intel's side in order to compete? Um, I don't see why not. I mean, right now they have um, HD 4000 dual-core parts, like the Core i3-3225, I think, is an HD 4000, and it's, a, it's like a $140 CPU. Um, I, I, I actually have one of those in as of a few days ago. Oh, awesome. I don't know. Um, what one of our partners gracefully provided me with a sample, so... That's awesome. Yeah, I really need one of those. I need to start poking around for one. They're officially launched now, so it's it's not a... I don't have to tiptoe around to get one. Which core is this? This is the uh, dual-core Ivy Bridge 65-watt oh. part with HD 4000 graphics. Cool, okay. Um, yeah, so so. anyways, that's, that's the skinny on Trinity. Um, it uh, obviously uses a new socket, socket FM2, um, and, and AMD realizes, like, so Lana only had, FM1 only lasted that one generation, and to keep people from kind of pitchforking and, and lighting everything on fire, they're saying uh, FM2 will last one more generation at least. Um, so you'll, you'll get, you know, anyone who buys an FM2 system today will hopefully be able to, with a BIOS update, drop in a, a steamroller-based APU um, in another year or so. Uh, which is nice. Um, that's that's something that AMD has kind of always offered as a uh, a big play for users who want to kind of keep the same motherboard and, and upgrade through multiple generations of processors. Now the so all of that was kind of straightforward. Um, October second is the official Trinity desktop launch, um, and and that's where we're going to be able to go forward with you know CPU and GPU performance numbers. Um, but that kind of brings me to the controversy side of it, which I don't want to spend a lot of time on, but I, I kind of wanted to... I, I responded in the comments to a few people um, just kind of explaining all of this, but but I wanted to do it here vocally as well. So uh, we published this in our review. AMD set a couple of terms when, when we, we published that review. They basically said, look, uh, October 2nd is the NDA date for Trinity reviews. If you want to publish anything before October 2nd. Um, so if you want to publish on September 27th, here's what you can talk about. You can talk about GPU performance. You can talk about experiential testing, right? So you can say, hey, it felt fast doing this or it felt slow doing this, but no CPU-based, like x86-based performance numbers can be shared on the 27th. Uh, if you want to do the 27th, all you get to talk about is GPU performance. Um, also, you don't get to talk about overclocking or pricing or anything else. Basically, if you want to do a preview, these are the terms. Uh, otherwise, you got to wait till the second. Um, I didn't think this was that big of a deal because this is what companies do all the time. Um, I, the the famous cases uh, Intel's Conroe launch, where uh, uh, at IDF they get us in a room and they say, "Hey, look, we have five benchmarks that you can run. Uh, these are the settings." They did let us play with the settings and and kind of tweak them and, and run them the way we wanted to. Um, but they limited us to testing those five applications and they with the five workloads that they provided and said, if you want to do this preview, this is what you got to do. Uh, obviously, that was at IDF. This is, you know, hardware being in our labs. 
Um, but so, at so, no so sorry, just, go ahead. just to be clear with this initial preview, they didn't mind what benchmarks you run just as long as it was purely GPU performance that you talked about. Yes, yeah. So we could run anything. Um, and and I'll get back to the the difference there in a second. Um, they didn't say only run these tests. They didn't you know say you know you have to run at these resolutions or with this memory speed or anything. It was just what you can you can publish graphics numbers. You can talk about the rest, but you can't publish any of the other numbers until October second. Now all of this was optional. This wasn't a if you don't do this, we're never giving you hardware again. There was no threats. None of that happened, right? It was just if you want to publish on the twenty seventh, this is what you're allowed to do. You don't have to. You can just say no, I don't want to do this, and and publish on the second, and everything's okay. It's not going to burn the bridge. AMD's not going to never send you another graphics card again. Like none of that was implied or threatened or anything like that. Um, so. Yeah, so that happened. I didn't think it was a big deal um, for a couple of reasons. One, we've actually had Trinity in-house for quite a while. Um, honestly, the only reason we didn't do more with it is because I just these past couple of months have been crazy. I didn't have time. Um, if AMD had said, look, you can go ahead and run all the numbers on the 27th, something would have had to have suffered, right? So I had the ability to focus on one part of the review, run all of the graphics benchmarks that I wanted to run. We had a lot of good computing benchmarks in there as well. Um, a lot of that would have to be sacrificed in in, uh, in order to kind of fit the CPU side in, uh, on top of that. Like I said, this is something other companies do all the time. Um, and, and to be honest, like you guys don't get to see a lot of this, you being the reader, uh, but there are companies that will call and put a lot of pressure and, and really try to get you to run certain comparisons or um, kind of do things a certain way. And, and AMD was not doing any of that, right? Like it's, it's uh, the experience in working with AMD is so far on the side of or at the end of the spectrum where they're not actually trying to pressure or control anything um, compared to a lot of what you don't get to hear about that does happen um, that that it's just it's not even worth comparing um, I don't typically like making a big deal out of things publicly um, so you know I mentioned a lot of companies will and and Brian you've you've felt the pressure as well you get a, a uh -huh, call or yes. an email from <laughs> you know a company I think saying, you're putting hey. it so well just like it's amazingly <laughs> diplomatic and well done and I, I think mean, my original thing is that when this is all said and done, you need to write a book about <laughs> here's everything, here's how it goes down. Yeah. So, because I don't so think a lot one, of readers do appreciate, I mean, like they don't see it. So it's hard to appreciate what all actually goes on. Yes. And, and so it's a, uh, you know, you might say, well, why don't you just write about it publicly? Um, I made a, like a conscious commitment back when I started the site that you guys come here not for drama, right? The readers come not to, because we're a tabloid, not because they want to see who's doing something dirty and who's not. You come here because you want to learn about technology and you want to learn about the products, figure out how things perform. You want to understand how it all works. You're here for the information. You're here for the knowledge. You're not here. I mean, there are tons of places where you can get the drama. And, and that's just not the kind of person I was. And there was a lot of that or the type of person I am. And there's a lot of that on the web already, especially now. And, and we've always just tried to shy away from that because I, I feel like that it attracts the wrong type of person. And it's, it's honestly, we all have better stuff to read about and, and worry about, right? I, I'd rather be known as uh, the level-headed one versus the, the one that's always kind of in the middle of, of any drama there. Um, so, so we don't talk about a lot of that stuff, but it does happen. Right. And it's it's one thing that, you know, there's a lot of pressure that's put on all of us here that you have to be able to kind of deal with 
this kind of undue pressure that you get and still fairly treat the company that's kind of being a pain in the ass and and not have the end review suffer as a result. Uh, so the way it usually works with a lot of these things, and, and this didn't happen with Trinity, but we'll get an angry call or an email, or sometimes it'll even be like an angry face-to-face meeting where they're like, you know, a company X will say, hey what you did was wrong or you shouldn't have run these tests or, and I'm not talking about, Hey, they don't agree with the way our numbers came out. Like they ran a number and it doesn't equal ours. It's never that it's, um, we don't think we should be testing this way, or we didn't like the language we, you used in this paragraph on this page. And yeah, <laughs> it's, it's literally that. And, and it gets insane. Like I've, I've had like actual yelling arguments with very, very, high-level people at companies because they weren't pleased with the way we treated stuff. Um, and, and it's interesting. You can tell a lot about who's kind of in someone's ear when you look at the subtle details in an article. It's never the big things, right? It's never, oh, they didn't include this CPU or, or they didn't do this. or, or It's, it's never the, the grand gestures, right? It's always really small things, word choice, sentence structure. Because the way this works is when we publish a review, or where anyone does, any of the sites that, that do this, uh, you know, let's say Ian publishes a review on a certain motherboard. The competitor to that motherboard, uh, to that motherboard maker, will take anything negative published about uh, published in that review. They'll put it in a presentation, and then they'll sell it to the, send it to their sales guys. And their sales guys will go to all their buyers and say, "Look, Anantech said this. You shouldn't, you know, you should defocus this product and sell ours instead." Now, the problem is the company that he's writing about, they know this also happens. So they, their job will be to get Ian on the phone and yell at him a lot and get him to change that wording as quickly as possible. Because then if a presentation goes out and, and that's not what the text says on the site, then it looks really bad for you know, the competitor. Uh, now, if Ian holds his ground and, and Ian says, listen, I, I, you know, I've understood what you're saying, but I think that's the only way that I'm going to word it, then I'll get a call. Right. And then I'll get a call from the same manufacturer saying, hey, you know, we're having a problem with Ian. Can you help out? And that's exactly how it happens. And it happens about products you wouldn't even assume mattered or that that would cause this kind of drama. But it does. It happens a lot of times. Um, Ian, I I know you've you know, the motherboard industry is very, very competitive, um, especially since it's gone through such consolidation. I know you've uh, seen and, and heard and experienced a lot of this. Is there anything you'd add to it? Um, a lot of it comes down to the words you choose. Some people take notice of individual words or phrases. Um, a lot of things as well is down to interpretation and translation because a lot of high-end people in these companies, English may not be their first language. Yes, no, that is very true. It's, it's so uh, how we structure reviews and whether or not they're going to upset a manufacturer, it rarely, rarely has to do with who's at the top of a chart. More often than not, it's, look, this one, one or two words or the way you phrase this sentence, like that pissed off my boss and, and this is going to be a real problem for me. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and you wouldn't assume that either. I and mean, the other big thing, and, and this applies more to Ian's side of the, the world, um, uh, being the, the products that Ian reviews, incredible pressure to, to kind of dole out Editor's Choice Awards. Um, and, and it was actually in response to that pressure. That's one of the reasons we're so stingy with them because so, so way back when, uh, you'd have all of these Taiwanese motherboard companies saying, um, you know, we need 
we need to win this many editor's choice awards for the year. And if you don't give us, you know, what does it take? How much does it cost? Whatever. And my response to that was, well, listen, you're just, no one's going to get them. Like if, if that's, if that's the, and, and, you know, they were trying to put a lot of pressure on us. Look, we can't advertise with you guys. Look, we can't work with you guys. Uh, we're not going to be able to get you, you know, early access to samples, so on and so forth. Um, so way back then I just, well, that's fine. No one's getting them. Like you just, you're just not going to get the awards. Um, and eventually it established us, a, you know, it got us established enough and, and uh, okay enough in their eyes that they know that you can't buy them. Um, so now we can kind of give them out when appropriate and roundups or, or what have you. Um, but that's another aspect where uh, there's just tons of influence uh, or at least tons of attempted influence on the manufacturer side. Uh, the other thing we have in place, so th there's a lot of pressure on the editors um, on our end to kind of, you know, take their feedback understand when does our word choice uh, maybe when can we accomplish the same thing and 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 kind of keep everyone happy right you know still convey the message to the end user and and still not you know have our words twisted out of context and, and used in some evil sales presentation somewhere uh, so balancing that there's a lot of pressure on the editors um the other thing position we have or, or a system we have in place is um, I don't employ any salespeople, uh, so we have a third-party agency, and, and they handle interfacing with all the ad folks. Um, so obviously, I brief them when there's some negative content coming out, but ultimately, it's their job to kind of deal with, uh, you know, any anything, any fallout that happens. And for the most part, we've gotten to the size where most companies are smart enough not to threaten to pull ads in response to something. Um, that just doesn't happen anymore. We we have we've had it happen uh, a lot of times over the the life of the site. Um, the most recent example was a few years ago. But again, it's it's stuff that drama that honestly doesn't matter, right? Like I, I get that uh, everyone wants to know who the clean companies are and who the dirty companies are. To be honest, pretty much everyone's played dirty at some point, um, and and I'd just much rather stay away from the drama. We've got too much stuff to do anyways um, than to to kind yeah. of bring it to the forefront. Um, but in you response know what's to the funny is I didn't even know that we could give out. Um, <laughs> well, I did, but I ne just never did. Like honestly, I my bar was so high. I think I gave out yes. one editor's choice award ever, or maybe yes. two. No, and and I'm totally fine with that, right? I would yeah. rather people be stingy with it than kind of everyone gets one. Um, but yeah, if you if you're wondering why uh, sites are very eager to give out awards, it's it's there's a lot of financial pressure on it. Um, it it's. Uh, People's bonuses sometimes guaranteed are based on the awards that they get. Yes. Yeah. No, it's, it's very true. Like I get, I get regular messages, um, from people, you know, working at various companies saying, Oh, you know, I'm not going to be able to, uh, uh, you know, my job is being defocused because we're not hitting our awards numbers and stuff like that. And they're totally trying to like, you know, get me to feel bad about the situation. Um, but I, there's just, there's nothing I can do there. Uh, it's, I, I don't determine who gives an award or what. Um, you know, everyone kind of autonomously picks when that happens. Um, I've I've given out several more awards recently than I have done in the past. Um, part of that is due to um, the process of reviewing is always a continuous learning experience. And, and now the fact that I've dealt with, you know, most of the PR people have been the same for the past year or so. And there have been some really, really nice products out which weren't here 12 months ago. But every so often I'll get an email saying, you didn't give our product an award, but you did give this one. Why? That happens yeah. behind the scenes. 
I think yes. that's more. And that's so much more of a PC thing. Like I never get pressure at all to give out yeah. awards per se. Yeah. So I think that's going to change, right? Like I, I think you're looking at two different industries at different points in their maturity. Um, you know, when there are only there's still more than enough money to go around in the smartphone space, right? Everyone puts out a phone. Everyone makes a decent amount of money off of it. Um, good profit margins. Like there's still that's still a very high growth industry. Um, I think once consolidation hits, that's the first thing that's going to change, right? You're going to see a lot of pressure, uh, competitive pressure between these companies. And then that's going to translate all the way down to the PR and the marketing teams who are going to thus uh, put a lot of pressure on all the reviewers. Because um, these days, you know, when you go talk to HTC or Samsung or any or LG or any of these guys, they're not really trash talking one another, right? Like they're just, they're happy to show you their product. Um, yeah, that's very true. <clears throat> and there's that's a little how, bit of jesting, but yeah, it's never serious. Like, yeah, oh, so, this is so, so terrible. Look at it. I'm going to make it fail. Yes. So that's what the PC industry used to be like, like in the motherboard space, at least it was everyone saying, Hey, look, this is how cool our stuff was. Now, when you go from 20 companies down to like two or three and when the motherboard market, so the, this is the first year that in North America, uh, the motherboard market will have shrunk. Right, it's still. It's if you want market share, you have to take it from somebody else. Yes, right. Like that's the only way your number is going to get bigger now. Um, so you got to take it from someone else, and and that extends across the company. Hopefully, it's a good enough company where that also permeates the engineering side, right? And and they they double down on engineering and and they do a good job there. But everyone has to be a part of the team, right? So PR says, look, the only way, or, you know, headquarters says to PR, the only way we're going to make more market, uh, get more market share, make more money is if we steal it from Asus or, or someone else. And then it, it makes people kind of more competitive. Uh, so when, I think when the, without a doubt, once the smartphone industry gets to that point, it's going to get dirty. Like everything else, it's just how it happens. It'd be a fun ride for you, Brian. Already there's this, there is a pressure to give a number, I've noticed. You know, I mean, we've talked about that. And again, it's because of marketing pressures. Oh, but, don't, um, don't get me into percentage numbers in reviews. Oh. Yeah, that sort of stuff. But yeah, I mean, again, yeah, I haven't seen any pressure yet, but I know, I know you're right that eventually it's going to come. At the same time, there's less, you know, like the, the Editor's Choice Awards are always a big deal in the PC space because that's a, that's a sticker that you can put on the box. You know, oh, like oh, when you're doing wait. your design, but in the smartphone space, there's just like the box you never get to see, right? Yeah. Like the box isn't a marketing thing so much, you know, it's just sort of there. Yeah. So uh, it, I wonder it, how that will affect things. Interesting thing. Um, a board that I gave an award to, rightly so, back in February, um, I actually saw it sort of on the shelf um, last week and it had our editor's choice wow yeah and you know that that board you were like i did th that <laughs> yeah this it, the board has plenty of awards from a lot of different websites but they chose the one i gave them so that's awesome I, I was quite happy for the rest of the day <laughs> <laughs> um, i mean that, that's not going to make me go out and give you know everything under the sun an award i mean that 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 company earned that product you know they engineered that and it performed very well yeah, and that's that's uh, what it should be. I mentioned quite a lot in my reviews, you know, exactly what needs to be done, what I find, you know, on the wrong side of, you know, what would be a normal usage scenario. 
Um, I say it time and time. I say stuff time and time again. Sometimes they pick up on it. Sometimes they don't. Yeah, it's always tough in these companies, right? Because it's 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 never a company where it's like three guys and they all control everything, right? It's there's a lot of internal political funniness that goes on when you're trying to in like you know, incite major change. Um, and it's always frustrating, right? Especially when you see a simple solution to a problem from the outside, getting that implemented is always difficult. Um, and you mentioned ratings. I, I don't know if you guys remember way back when, um, like early, early on in the site, uh, I would say like 97, 98, we used to have a rating system um, for all, all products that we reviewed. The issue was uh, it was a rating system that I did my way, right? Which was if you got an average product, it was a it was a zero to a hundred, um, and you got like a uh, an F through an A scale, so kind of like a report card. Um, so if you had an average product, you got a average score, you got a fifty, and uh, that didn't go over so well with people. No, <laughs> I can oh, imagine awesome. not. Yeah, I, I, I've seen websites where they say a product, um, specifically in the gaming industry. I was going to say gaming, yes. Yeah. So, so the game is rubbish. Nothing works. Gameplay is terrible. And music's terrible. Gets a six out of ten. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, what do you need to get a four out of ten? Do I need to place rotting meat inside the case? If that's so, how do I get a two out of ten? Yeah, and and like I'm totally fine. I'll I will 100% back ratings if you let me do them right, right? If you have an average product, you're getting whatever the middle score is, right? If it's 1 through 10, you're getting a 5. <laughs> like I'm sorry, that's what you're getting if it's an average product. And the problem was the vast majority of what we reviewed would get like a 50 to 70 and everyone was like what's wrong with this product you said you you know it was fine and and all the motherboard manufacturers that because that's what this applied to mostly at the time uh they were really upset they're like why do my products get c's like i don't understand it's just <laughs> my boss is really upset <laughs> at me there's one issue with the ones 10 and that's the zero yeah yes do we so, include so, zero or not include zero i vote to so, include so, zero so so the worst <laughs> game on metacritic is um a very awful driving game um, where you could continuously drive backwards and it would continue accelerating forever or something similar like that. No collision detection or you could reverse up mountains, you know, at, a 90, at an 89% gradient. Um, but on, on Metacritic, it has a rating, last time I checked, of 6%. That's because some of the review websites that reviewed it, the lowest they could give was a 1 out of 10. <laughs> that's awesome i mean i don't see I, I don't see a point for a zero like i would include it but i don't see a product i mean short of the pr company just like shooting me in the leg like i don't see the zero ever happening right because i've never i've never encountered a product that is completely without any merit at all right there's always something that they did kind of okay um i mean a zero would just be you know they killed my dog and I'm like, I can't, I can't in good conscience give this, give this a one. It has to get a zero. You probably wouldn't review it. It just like, yeah. it stole your car. It like <laughs> stole your girlfriend. It like also like stole your identity. We just, yeah, we're not be... going to speak of it ever. <laughs> the, the, the issue with the rating system is it also depends on how you're feeling that day. Yeah, I but guess so. so. Review, well, right? if it's done right, it shouldn't, but yeah. No, but we're all human beings in that regard. Yeah, sure. if, if it's a sunny day and you want to go outside, you may, well, you won't skimp on testing it at Nantech, but 
I would just do sentiment analysis. Just do like feature extraction on your review text and then do sentiment analysis in the respective <laughs> sections. And then you get a score out that's just a number. Is, is, right. is, is, is this auto summarize your review into three words? And... Exactly. For, it would be like, <laughs> for motherboard, it would be like CPU, fast, ooh, shiny, or like, I don't know, <laughs> something really just, just very unexpected. You know, like the phone, it's big. And <laughs> this would be the Brian Klug solution to how do you do ratings? It's, yeah, that's fine. We'll just completely analyze the crap out of every single like character in the review. Yeah, I mean, that's the best and way to do it because otherwise it's not going to reflect the text. Like, that's the thing that I always see with scores is yes. that it, it often doesn't reflect what I read as the user. I mean, I mean, it's, the diff- score it's difficult, there. right? Because then, like, what percentage of your actual sentiment about the X made it into the text? And then what percentage... So it's, like, leaky, right? You see what I'm saying? There's, like, an, a loss when you do, yeah. when you do well, that sort of scoring. Well, well, well so well, the thing is... What about the sc- if the review has a factual inaccuracy? Oh, well, that's and, just bad. You did your job wrong then. <laughs> we'll pretend that doesn't happen. <laughs> well, no, so here's the thing. The, the reason... There's that discrepancy between score and review is because the score isn't for the person reading the review, right? It's for the PR person that has enabled the review, right? Like it's, oh, it's you're a, totally right. I, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, what, the other thing that people don't get or don't get exposed to is, uh, and, and Brian, I think I even told you this, right? And Ian, I probably mentioned it to you as well. The PR guys that we work with, right, they are paid to be your friends, and, and if you go in with that mentality, I think you'll view things in a very different way than, hey, these guys are my friends. They just work at a company that I happen to work with. Um, yeah. And it's a subtle difference. <laughs> That's sort but of the naive versus, like, I know what's going on here <laughs> mentality. Uh, I, uh, I, I do see sort of buddy-buddy relationships, you know, forming as a result of PR people working with uh, other websites in our field. Yeah, and... Will that relationship um, last longer than that person has that job? Well, so, and, and, you know, this is, of course, I, I have a lot of friends who, you know, I've met through doing all of this, but I always approached it saying, look, this person is paid to be nice to me. Some of them aren't nice, like they're just not doing that part right, but they, they're paid to be nice to me. And, uh, Kind of when viewed through those eyes, yeah, you can form a friendship or whatever, but you, you feel less, uh, uh, I guess you're a little more on guard around them, and, and you're not as worried about, uh, hey, I'm going to upset them with this thing I'm about to say, uh, because I mean, they're paid to be nice to me. They're like, this isn't, this, this isn't a friendship that was formed because you know, we both went to school together and, and grew up together or whatever. Um, now, that being said, I, I have befriended a lot of these people, uh, but I, I think... It's a lot easier when you meet them in person. Yes. To, uh, to, to understand their mannerisms and how they think rather than just on the end of email. Yeah, exactly. But I, I think, you know, one thing that happens with a lot of these guys is, um, you know, they'll, they'll take us out, right? Like we go out to dinner, um, you know, they'll take you wherever and, and you do things that friends would do together. And I think a lot of people have a difficult, I mean, it's a difficult thing separating that from hey, you have this job to do that may make your friend upset, <laughs> right? Like, and, yeah. and, you know, there's this kind of inherent desire to want to make your friend happy and you have the ability to do that. 
Um, and, and I think a lot of folks also make the mistake of writing to their industry versus writing to their readership, right? Like there's a lot of coverage that comes out and I, and I read things and I think the only people that care about this are other writers and people who work at the companies, right? Like the actual people buying this stuff, they have no idea why this is significant. Um, or it's and, a regurgitation of what the PR has handed. Well, no, not necessarily that, but just, you know, when, when, uh, when there's controversy or when there's, you know, something that, oh my God, I can't believe Company X did this. A lot of that stuff is motivated because in the eyes of the, or in the mind of the, the writer, uh, they think this is a major, yeah. yeah, it's, it's relevant because that's all they hear, right? They hear their, their company contacts talking about it. They hear their other peers talking about it in the press, but it's not stuff that the actual readers care about. Right. And, and I think that's, it's, it's always very, I, I know in my mind, you know, you kind of always have to hit refresh on, uh, who am I subservient to? Right. And, and if you hit refresh and anything other than the readers comes up, then your content is colored, unfortunately. Very true, yeah. Um, and that's, that's, that's all drama. Like, if it's not relevant to the end reader interest, then nine times out of ten, it's just, you know, drama or gossip, and it may be interesting, but... Yeah. Yeah, and, it's and not so I, I have relevant. Stuff like this has bubbled up to the top of the site in the past. Um, so, uh, but, but I kind of pick and choose the battles. So, a while ago, um, when AMD released Phenom, uh, and, and someone brought this up when, when I did, uh, uh, when, when the Trinity stuff happened. When they released Phenom, AMD was kind of in this unfortunate position of not making a lot of money, um, not being competitive on the product side, and uh, uh, yet they were still throwing like a lot of parties. Like They were spending a lot of money on PR. And I remember there was this, this Phenom launch where they said, look, you're going to be able to, we want you to test Phenom, we want you to review it. Uh, we're going to fly you out to Lake Tahoe. It's going to be beautiful. We're going to set you up with the Phenom system. You run whatever you want. Um, but, you know, you'll just have a great time. It'll be really relaxing. And I remember them stressing to me that it would be relaxing. And at that point, you have to realize this was like a year's worth of me asking, look, you guys need to let us kind of set expectations on Phenom. You know, people are... And, and AMD at the time kept saying, like, look, we don't want to show our cards yet. We don't want Intel to know how good we are. It turned out they, you know, weren't that competitive, but they were kind of building up this hype that they were going to have a good product here. And so I kind of hit this, like, boiling point where I'm like, look, you guys, you don't have this kind of money to be spending, and I don't want a free trip to Lake Tahoe, right? Like, I just, I just want a chip. Um, so I exposed some of that publicly, right? Like that was one of the times where I said, look, this has gotten ridiculous. Uh, you guys need to be focused on the right things and this isn't one of them. Um, so I, I did let some of that bubble up to the, the site and, and kind of my point there is with this training GPU stuff, I, I didn't see it as a major issue. Um, companies have done this all the time. Um, and, and I, I heard, you know, this kind of slippery slope argument, right? So the, the idea was that, well, this wasn't that bad, but where do you stop, right? Well, what happens if NVIDIA says, um, you know, you, you have to do this? Or what happens if Intel says, you know, you only have to run benchmarks that are uh, AVX2 optimized for Haswell? And, and, you know, where do you draw the line? And, and my kind of answer to that is, we draw that line all the time. Like, it yeah, happens those internally. Those battles have been fought already. <laughs> those battles get fought on the regular. And if it ever came to the point where I was left without... So we, we fight those battles privately, and, and I like to believe that we kind of usually win. Um, if we ever got to the point where something publicly had to happen, it would happen. 
right? I, you know, one, one, uh, one thing that comes to mind was uh, way back when, uh, when OCZ took over, or, or before um, Ryan Peterson, the, the, you know, the former CEO of OCZ, before he came back and, and took over the company, uh, OCZ had had such a bad track record. This was uh, late 90s. They had such a bad track record with service and uh, with just screwing customers over, screwing our readers over, that we had to instant like we instituted a site wide ban, not on their products, on them advertising their products. So I had to go to our ad agency guys and say, "Nope, you just, you're not taking their money because I you can take their money, but they're not putting an ad anywhere on the site. We are not sending them any business. Like we weren't going to review the products." But we instituted a ban. We were like, we're not advertising these guys, period. They're just, they're too shady. Um, and, and I remember, you know, Ryan Peterson, when he took over the company, he was like, all right, look, we, we should buy ads on and on tech, get, our, get the word out that, you know, we're back. And, and I met with him at a hotel and I was like, no, it's, that's not happening. And he said, well, why not? I don't understand. And I gave him a long list. And I was like, you have to do these 10 things. You have to fix these 10 things. And then... Not will you review, will review your stuff. I was not even, we weren't even talking at that point. This is then I will lift the ban and allow you guys to put ads on the site. Um, and to his credit, he, he did turn the company around from, from where it was. Um, but, but that's the kind of stuff that we'll do, right? We will put pressure. And, and that's one example of how we put pressure. There are a lot of ways internally that we can put pressure on companies if things ever get too bad. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my spiel on that. I'm, I'm kind of done there. Um, but rest assured, we, we do fight these battles a lot internally, and uh, uh, we, uh, we have the tools necessary to, to kind of come out ahead, I believe, at least. And if it ever gets too bad, then we'll, we'll obviously enlist the help of the readership. Um, one last thing I want to talk about on the PC side before we move to, I know Brian's just done a ridiculous amount of work on iPhone 5. Uh, Christian from our SSD team, he was actually in Seoul, South Korea, uh, like a few days after Brian was there, um, at Samsung's launch event for the Samsung SSD 840 and 840 Pro. Um, if you're looking for an SSD, I have really, really been happy with the, the latest Samsung drives, um, which is just complete 180 from the early Samsung drives, which is garbage, um, not worth the money. Uh, but, but now they're performant, uh, they're, they're, Great performers, they're relatively well-priced, uh, and they've been really reliable. Um, we did a review of the 840 Pro. You can check it out on the site. Um, our review sample died, so I'm hoping that's not indicative of a major problem, um, but, but they're still a little bit away from launch. Uh, the other major thing, though, is... Um, so the 840 Pro is great. The 840 is really interesting because this is the first mainstream client drive that uses 3-bit per cell MLC NAND. And... Christian released some benchmarks that showed it's very competitive. Uh, it's not going to really save you a lot on, on pricing yet, but the idea here is, and, and maybe I'll talk a little bit more about this next time, um, once you ramp up production of, of kind of SSD-grade 3-bit per cell MLC NAND, then that's going to drive prices down quite a bit. Um, so this is a great alternative to today, if you want to ship a, a mainstream computer with affordable solid state storage, you go and buy a crappy controller and you buy good NAND and, and that's it. Um, this is another solution to that, right? It's a, uh, you buy more affordable NAND, you have a great controller, you know, the 840 controller is effectively the same controller that's in the 840 Pro um, and, and you have a great drive solution. So you don't no longer have to go and buy a Fizon controller or something that's just really bad. Um, here you'd still get a really good experience. So over time, I, I think this, this has a lot of potential to really lower the bar um, 
for the entry into to the SSD space. So that's really exciting to me. Um, and Christian's working on that review now. It, it should be done here in the, uh, the next few days. Um, it would have been fun it. if we were both in South Korea at the same time, but it, it was just like he literally got there right after I got back here. Yeah, it's it's I was like I was worried when I first saw that email come in, like it was a request from Samsung you know, that we need to be there. I'm like, oh, God, I hope this is not Samsung phone <laughs> or something yeah. where, you know, that would have been a, a big problem. But no, this this worked out very well. Um, OK, anyways, Brian, iPhone five. What what is your what's going on there? Well, so, I mean, you've been doing a lot of testing, too. You've been doing much more battery life stuff because I don't have I don't have AT&T LTE here. And I'm going to yes, hijack keep a friend's Verizon LTE phone later today. I've, I, I, so I haven't even told you this yet. I, I made one more battery life test because um, I, I still wasn't totally happy with the last one. Uh-huh. Um, but it's, it's... So I was thinking, you know, I was like, you know, may, maybe the last one was really very network-focused and display-focused, right? And, yeah. and I thought, that's good, but I feel like we need, we need more of a chip focus. Like, we, we need more something that's... It's, going to stress the AP a bit more because that's, that's obviously one of the major power consumers there. Yes. Um, so I did a rev of web test four um, that is very aggressive on the CPU. Um, Ooh, cool. Yeah, it's, it's very aggressive on the CPU. So basically, you know, the, the problem I was having is I'm getting a lot of feedback from a lot of people using the phones and, and they're just complaining about battery life. And there's, there's no good way to simulate what they're doing so I was like, well, what if we had a test that would you know, really spike CPU every handful of seconds? And that's what this does effectively. Um, so every, every five or so seconds, you get a CPU spike um, anywhere from like the uh, 10 to, I don't know, 70, 80% range of, of over two cores. Interesting. So it just loads know, a lot of pages very quickly? Yes. I was going to say, you're not uh, using an applet to Bitcoin mine, are you? No, no, no. It's not JavaScript Bitcoin mining. That would kill the phones (laughs) in like 30 minutes. Guaranteed. Well, it's interesting because we have the, uh, so we also have the data that um, from, from our GLbench battery life test, right? And, and that'll kill a phone in, uh, that actually kills the AT&T 1X in 2.2 hours. Um, At 30 FPS though, right? At 30 FPS. Um, So it could actually kill it even faster if, if we uncapped it. Um, But uh, so we have that point, and that data point is useful, but I think that it's still, still not ideal, right? Because like, that's a little too extreme. So I wanted something that was way more CPU-focused, um, yeah. but, but still fairly aggressive. Um, so we'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm actually running all that data right now, and, and I'll have, um, uh, I'll have some, some results for you later tonight to look at. Yeah, as long uh, as, as I in... know what to run on this, my friend's one. I think I might, yeah. I might do the 5B2. So I kind of like I like the network stack being sort of an emphasis, but so, so yeah, this at the one, same time, that one was I don't know the results that I got that were a little bit weird in Phoenix. I think were just a result of network conditions where I were where I was. Yeah, so so I I think the the end result is going to be that we're going to have to have uh, a mixture of the two tests, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. the the problem with this test is this test actually does uh, uh, fairly well on. Uh, so if you take iPhone 5 on Wi-Fi versus on 3G, um, there's a substantial difference, right? It is lighting up the network. Um, so I put in a lot more uh, cache busting stuff in there, um, and, I, and I monitored it in, um, 
the Safari debug console just to just to make sure uh, that you know there were elements that still weren't being cached, and and that ends up being true. So a lot of stuff is still not cached, um, but it's just not focused on transferring a lot of data, right? It lights up the baseband, lights up the power amps, gets them to do a little bit of work, but it's mostly bound by SOC and and display. Yeah, display is just such a huge draw in any case. Yeah. Which is um, normal. So it's interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll send it, I'll, I'll, um, uh, I'll send you the link to it. And, and more importantly, I'm just trying to like not get you to waste your time running a bunch of stuff that I was just going to change in another day. So I'm, I'm trying to, I have a lot of data that I'm just going to dump on you and, and see what you think. Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, honestly, we've been needing to sort of move, move off of, uh, I believe it's web test two that I've been running forever. And not that there's anything significantly wrong with it, but I would like to see, you know, a faster, you know, test. And I, you know, honestly, I, I don't put any value in a lot of subjective use cases from other people, because frankly, I don't know how they use their phone. Yes. And, no, um, I think I that's a major a lot problem. Of people that make this sort of like knee jerk reactions, don't know what the big draws are, don't know what's really going to cost a lot. Yes. And, I, I mean, I still see people complaining about location services being a big draw and, I don't that think bug that's... is still there. Yeah, oh, I've seen it? that bug before. Yeah, there's a lot of people too that don't know you can fix that in like 10 seconds. Just go under general privacy location services, find what process has the blue lit up so it's lighting up GNSS, and then just turn it off and you're done. So, so how big of a, a power draw is uh, all the, the, you know, GLONASS and GPS and all that still? Not it's not really all that big. It's the problem is that when it's just on all the time, you know that's that's I believe it's like hundreds of milliwatts because you have you oh, have wow. a noise amplifier there, you know, to boost off of what what you're getting from that antenna, and so that path is always turned on. But I mean, it's comparatively free these days because that's you know that's increasingly something that's on the baseband, and. It's not not as much of a, you know, like it's discrete. It's on some other wonky process. It's on a different everything. But, you know, if it's on all the time, yeah, that's going to eat up battery significantly compared to the phone, you know, being almost off and then just doing tens or tens of milliwatts, you know. So, yeah, that's that's a concern. But it's easy enough to debug on the iPhone now that it should just be a non-issue. But I've, I've seen I've seen that happen before still. Honestly, the bigger thing for me is that, you know, there were some people talking about, like, I guess the podcast app would just randomly corrupt its database and then re-download all the podcasts over and over and over again. Or like iTunes Match would just get stuck and constantly re-download a song and that would just drain everybody's phone. But this is, again, if you're getting these issues, just you got to treat it like PC debugging and just like nuke everything and then start over. And I realize that's, <laughs> that's asking a lot when you've got all these you know, apps with data that can't be backed up or a lot of the time you can't, you know, just, you know, very, you know, fine-grained take backups that are only of certain app application data sets. Um, but yeah, that has to be done. Otherwise, like, I don't know what, you know, like when people are like, oh, the battery life is terrible. I'm like, what? Well, that doesn't mean anything to me, you know? And, <laughs> and like on Android, it's easy enough to just fire up CPU spy and I, every time that I do this on somebody's phone and they're like, oh, it's terrible. And I'm like, but in, our, in my tests, it's fine. And I fire up CPU spy. It's like, yeah, the phone is never asleep. It's just wake locked all the time. 
you know, so you can't do that on the iPhone, but you can do that on Android really easily. Just look at the state yeah. table. Like, again, the state table is your friend. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah, because no, I mean, no, like, it's, if it's, it's not in true. deep sleep, something is wrong. Yes. Like, just right off the bat, if it's like, if the phone isn't in, in the sleep state when it's in my pocket, like, I know something is very wrong. Like, either there's an application that's just preventing everything from going to sleep or, you know, their power management is terrible. You know, like the kernel is all messed up. And that's happened before. Like, I think somebody shipped a tablet uh, just recently. One of those, you know, like kind of like no name vendors, they shipped a tablet with uh, the governor set to performance. So it literally never went below the max clock. Wow. Ever. Yeah. That's so funny. like this is stuff that happens, you know, so. <laughs> and yeah. so that's the downside. Uh, I recently downloaded an app to um, turn off. Um, extra services when I didn't need them. So when the screen was off, I didn't need GPS and it would automatically turn that off. See, I don't know why people so do that either because the GPS isn't on, even though the toggle's on. You know what I'm saying? This is another thing. Can... I've had this discussion with other phone editors too and it's it's surprising that there's still a debate about it. But it's okay to leave those toggles on. Yeah, because like it should it's, just it's okay get to leave Wi-Fi right? on too. It gives me a noticeable difference in battery life. But so, yeah, but I mean, have that... you measured before and after? Just the feel. Maybe it's a placebo effect. I don't know. Well, so the other thing is what Brian was just talking about, right? It could be you have an app that's running that's requesting location when it shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because right? so that's like, why you know, see a thing. In, in a, in a well-designed SoC, all of that stuff should get power-gated the second it's not doing anything right like that's if it's not being told hey you need to transact data it's just it should get gated right voltage should be pulled from it and it should just stay in like a a, a dormant state until something demands that it wakes up yeah that should but i mean an android works. you can you can do whatever you want like even you can have an app that's just a bad actor and is always using gps uh, whenever i close an app i always click advanced task killer Ah, that's another thing too. That you don't need to do that in Android four as much anymore. Yeah, because in Android four, as soon as you kill it from the 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 switcher part, it's gone, right? Uh, well, if you drag it off to the side, you know, if you kill it from that the task yeah. switcher interface, it's gone. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, you see, normally I don't my I when I'm done with an app, I don't you know go back out of it. I just go straight back to the menu screen. So yeah. it's still so it's still in memory, still in task manager. So then I just use advanced task killer. Yeah, I mean, just in general, it's not as much of a thing anymore. Like that, that used to be a, you know, like a huge deal. And then it used to be a huge deal whether the OEM included their own task manager. Like this was something everybody wrote about. Yeah, but it's just not as much of a deal anymore. So I don't know. And then everybody posts those like battery life graphs. You know the graph thing, or my favorite is the um. That like percentage use thing, yes. You know, there's that which is horrible in Android. So those yeah. are based on numbers that are hard coded by the OEM. You know, most of the time they like they decide this is how much relative use having Wi-Fi on is. This is how much relative use this app is, and you can see those like um, they're just scalars that get multiplied. You know, by like either the time that's spent. By that process with you know like you know CPU time basically times this and that gets added together, um, 
So literally, that that's not like it's magically measuring everything, unfortunately. Although there are some there are some phones that you can go and see the PMEC. Here's how much current, and how you know like at times voltage. Here's how much power is being drawn instantaneously. But that's still that's not what that is. So don't don't think that it's just for readers. Don't think that that's magically what that is. But. Anyway, so that's why that's my whole like rant slash arm waving about battery life and <laughs> why it's anecdotal and why the only thing that I really test, trust are our tests. And then I know what I'm doing most of the time. And, you know, I think that in the case of the five, would it be fair to say that they kept battery life roughly the same? Um, yeah. So what I've seen thus far is uh, so. So here's what I've seen thus far. Under max load, uh, similar to actually with the 4S, there's more dynamic range now. So it can, I can make it die quicker than the 4S, and I can make it last longer. If you run in a very idle case, you do see an improvement in battery life. And I think that's purely a function of 32 nanometer, low power, high K metal gate. Um, they've, they've just got leakage under control there. Um, yeah. At the, the worst end, I mean, hey, it's a faster piece of hardware with you know a, 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 a fairly modern you know, set of architectures underneath it. Um, and you can definitely get it to draw more. Um, the other thing I noticed is in our network bound battery life tests, right? So the tests that are basically just bound by, uh, the display and, and lighting up power amps and, and the baseband, uh, I do see a slight improvement there as well, uh, versus the 4S. Um, well, we see the LTE is better, right? Yes. Which is difficult for people to understand, but it does make sense. It's better given the same amount of work, yeah. right? So if you are browsing the same web page, like if you load, if all you do is you load one web page on the 4S and on the 5, with the 5 being on LTE, everything else the same, the 5 will use less power in, in doing that over, over, over time. Now, if you use the performance improvements on the 5 to load two times the amount of web pages or, you know, what have you, then you can have worse battery life on the 5. Um, so again, just I think you were the one that said this with the 4S. You just have more dynamic range with power consumption. And I think, honestly, I think that's just going to be how things are going forward now. Um, yeah, you exactly. Know, the days, if, if we were talking about phones built at like 130 nanometer or 90, you know, we would still get you know, some of those big power gains where you have your cake and you eat it too. I, I think that's done. I think all we're going to get now is dynamic range. Um, you know, we're going to get some cases where there are tremendous improvements in one thing and, and you know, you give up. Uh, as these things become full-blown computers, you're going to eat a lot of power, man. Like, <laughs> when you start using them, you're going to start eating up quite a bit of power. When you start docking them into your TV, into your monitor, and you yeah. use them as a PC. I mean, it's not even that, right? Yeah, like, but my just... TV and monitor will have power. Yes, and then we'll get wireless power and we'll be okay. Well, and it <laughs> charges fast, too. So, I mean, yes, like, yeah. the thing that I wanted to talk about a lot about the 5 was I spent a lot of time um, when I went to Phoenix talking with audience, and I guess they've been going around and talking to other people, too, and obviously this is sort of a mitigation for the news that we talked about and that they're in the die, but they're not turned on. Well, you know, hang so on with one the, second, Brian. I'm sorry, um, you are going to say something? No, no, can, can you explain to everyone who doesn't know what audience does? Um, yeah. Sure. What are so they, what do they do? So I mean, like in a smartphone, or you know, in any mobile device, obviously, or in a phone, I guess, the obviously you need to have clean voice. Like this is a, a consideration that's important. 
And it's important not only just because you want, you know, to be able to understand the other person, but also because you want to increase your capacity. Like you want to have as few bits transmitted as possible and um, you want to save power. And that's done by increasing the silent periods between when I'm speaking and when there's nothing going on. So how do you do that? Well, you need to cancel out noise. You need to isolate what the actual, you know, the part of your voice that contains data, you know, like speech, where I encode my speech, and um, just get those bits across the network. So those are important things, and um, audience makes uh, a combination of, you know, an IP product and also discrete processors that sit between the audio codec and the SOC and uh, all the microphones and do some filtering. So using some proprietary methods, which basically just boil down to a lot of feature extraction and, you know, fancy tricks in the frequency domain. And when you have pairs of microphones, this becomes easier. So anyways, in the four and uh, a lot of other phones, they were in there as a discrete chip in the a five, uh, SOC, I mean, um, yeah, A5 SOC there in the 4S, they were in there as an IP block on the die, which is something they did only for Apple. And then in A6, they built another IP product uh, that's on the die for A6, but it's not turned on. And, and of course, they're in like a bunch of different other phones. Like Nexus One was sort of famous for being the first big one. Um, they're in the 1X, the 8961 X. They're in, you know, Galaxy S3, all of them. They're in a bunch of these other different phones. Apparently, the Pantech Burst, oddly enough, has like the best voice quality ever. I learned, really? yeah, like so much so that I want to buy one. Like it's only a fifty dollars phone, but it actually has, in in objective measures and subjective measures, the best performance in terms of voice. Yeah, which is sort of That's hilarious. Awesome. But anyways, anyways, so on the iPhone five, they implement Apple implemented their own. Um, techniques and I spent a lot of time trying to reverse engineer and figure out what what that was and um, you know they already said that it's a beam former so then we just confirmed that it's a beam former and there are three microphones and they do you know like earpiece noise rejection but I've sort of started to get a good understanding and a good feel for how their system works and they have um, they have some adaptation time that's on the order of like five to ten seconds and then they'll kick into different various modes like, for example, when you're in a loud environment, there's roughly, I think it's, it's I've measured like 10 seconds, but I've, I've felt it in as little as five. The active noise canceling circuit will kick in and you can feel that pressure. Um, and, of, and of course, it doesn't seem like they work in the frequency domain. They work in the time domain. So you see that they'll sort of cut in and out depending on noise around you. Um, so characterizing that has been something I've been working on for a while, but Anyways, when I was in Phoenix, I met up with them and, you know, we're familiar with what they do, but for a lot of other people, I think they weren't as familiar and they just heard, you know, oh, they're screwed because Apple didn't turn it on. Um, but for me, that's, that's like, I knew that already. So, you know, that's, I mean, it's interesting, but they're going to apparently go into some other markets as well. And that was, that was the big news. And then ironically, that same day is when all this purple haze noise started up. You know, like the purple back reflection that people started noticing on the camera. I don't know if you've seen that at all and on the, the purple yeah, thing no, I sent you some pictures. Yeah, I did. Um so so that that's when you're 
uh, you get those kind of like purple spots in the like just in, in photos that you take with the back camera. That's right. Yeah. And everybody was talking about, oh, is this, you know, there's this weird thing that happens with the iPhone and everybody goes through their like hypersensitivity to any defects period. And, yes. you know, we need to find like a, a gate of some kind. I don't know how this started. Maybe that's sort of our fault with the four. Like now everything has a gate, you know, like what's <laughs> 4S was battery gate four was antenna gate, which was real. And now, like, everything since then has just been sort of like we need to come up with a gate of some kind. You know, you it's, know? it's cheap journalistic tricks, man. It's an easy way to get people to look at you. Yeah, and, and so then I was like, well, should I address this or does it legitimize the issue? Because this is just a stray light thing. So you have, you have the cover glass, then the first vertex of the lens is coated with, it looks like just mag fluoride or some other, you know, you have AR coatings, basically to minimize these reflections and increase the light throughput. So you want to index match and get as much light into the system as possible. And then, you know, also because this is a wider angle, it tends to be more susceptible to just stray light issues. And in, in some cases when you have, you know, a light source at the right angle, it looks like there is a back reflection that takes place, you know, off that front vertex. It picks up some color from the filter, bounces off the, sapphire cover glass and then back into the system and you know like stray light is a it's a problem but you can't very well put you know a lens hood or big baffles on a phone and at the same time every other device has had this um i don't know why people just started noticing it and i think some of the thought process as far as it went was oh well sapphire crystals look purple to me the color is purple <laughs> therefore it's clearly this new thing that they added even though chemically treated sapphire windows are clear like anybody who owns a rolex watch knows this or like anybody who's ever looked at like any watch ever that's like above 100 bucks should know you know like this is obvious so that was just like laughable and that was that's purple haze gate or whatever. So and I, I was like, I'm just not even going to legitimize this, but we'll talk about it in the review. Okay. And so, yeah, literally. And the, the fix literally is like make a light baffle with your hand, you know, like cover cover it because like you have a feel, like a cone of light. That's the acceptance angle that's going to make it onto the sensor. And then you have some like angle outside of that. And that can bounce around inside your system and create glare and lower the contrast and all these other things. And these are like problems you worry about when you're designing a system, but there's no real way to mitigate it when I'm talking about like a package that's millimeters. So yes. if you just put your hand uh, and, and cover that straight light, then you won't get the purple. And that's literally all you need to do. <laughs> so again, uh, in case anyone didn't realize, uh, Brian is an optical engineer and <laughs> that's why, uh, all of this kind of comes, uh, I guess, to his mind right away. Yeah, this is like, well, as soon as I saw that, I was like, this is a stray light issue. And some people were like, oh no, it's some weird chromatic aberration. I'm like, this is not, that's not what, that's not what that looks like. You know, like it's, it's chromatic insofar as it's colored, but it's not, it's not chrome, you know, it's not LCA or TCA or any of the, it's not light coming to focus at a different point. It's just picking up some color. Like this is, every photographer knows about this. If, if you've played around with cameras long enough, you know, I just, I, I, I'm, I don't know how this keeps happening that 
we just get this perfect combination of an optical system issue and you being faced with it. And like, it's, I mean, I would assume. <laughs> I don't know either. You know, Trust me, I'm not. There's no, there's not being contrived here. No, I know that, right? Like, it's just, I would, I would assume, you know, that these things are, are largely. There's, I get that, that the camera is a big part of them, but I'm like, of all the things that should be happening, I, I would figure, you know, the optical engineering side of it that just wouldn't come in that often. But it's like clockwork, man. Every couple of weeks, there's some absurd thing that comes out, and then Brian just, I get this series of engineering textbook IMs from Brian that are just like, that's not what's going on. <laughs> this is obvious. Didn't you guys take Optics 304? And I'm like... <laughs> There is a fix for this. Somebody's going to come out with an iPhone case which you can attach a miniature baffle to. Oh, that'd be cool. Well, I mean, most of the time that increases glare with your flash. Like, this is a big thing, is that when you have... Like, that's a stray light issue, just perfect. When you have the flash and you're wearing... And you have a case on, and all of a sudden, like, your image is white. You know? That's stray light again. Like, stray light is a big, big problem. You know, there's no easy fix. If anybody listens to this podcast and makes that case, um, I want 10%, just so you know. <laughs> You'll sue them. I think that's fair. I think that's a... <laughs> oh, I and then there's that good... low-light mode, too. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out the low-light mode, and then everybody figured it out at the same time. But, yeah, the low-light mode works. It's pretty cool. They just boost yeah. up to, like, 3200 ISO, and then it looks like they do some binning and then cance- cancel out noise. So you still end up getting an 8-megapixel image out of it. But... Yeah, it's it's noisier, but it's you know, it's you can see like much better in the dark. Like it's we'll have some side by side pictures, and it's it's crazy actually. Yeah, the stuff you sent me, I thought looked really really good. Yeah, it was shocking. Like I I didn't believe it at first, and um, it looks like the exposure time is the same. The exposure time in EXIF is still one fifteenth of a second, which is the longest possible um, between the four S and the five. But I'm not sure I believe it, so I'm gonna do some tests with Ganesh. Was like, you need to take pictures with a stopwatch, and I was like, yeah, I know, but I don't have a chronometer or anything, so I'm gonna go find something that's moving, you know, like a chronometer, and then we can see if they're they're lying to us about their integration. But um, we'll see. Was it the uh, Nokia Lumia, which um, when you went to the uh, show, they had a low light box? Yeah, Nod got to play with the 920, which has OIS, that has real optical image stabilization, and they, they keep showing it off, but it's not final. And I believe The Verge got to take pictures in Central Park, and then um, and Gadget, you know, Miriam, who's a friend, got to go take uh, some samples with it in Finland. And their performance looks great. I mean, obviously, it's Nokia. Like, you just can't... Nobody ever... Like, they're, like, they're, they're here. They're, like, light years away. And everybody else is just kind of like down here, you know, in terms of they've been doing this forever and it's a big emphasis of theirs. So yes, it's not super surprising, but yeah, their OIS works great. Yeah. The 920 camera in, in that like dark box or whatever, I, I thought looked very, very good. Um, they, uh, and low light's so important with, with smartphone cameras, right? Cause effectively all, all shots you take with it are either in perfect light or just low light. Right. Like there's no, uh, you know, because you don't normally have studio lights set up when when you're shooting with your camera. We have to be a point where the cameras are good enough that we can go to these shows and take pictures with the smartphone rather than 
you know, a four thousand dollar DSLR. And but hmm. we're optically limited there, aren't we, Brian? Like it's just the lens will never be good enough. Uh, you know, I mean, it could get there. I think this is a like a ph- philosophical thing. You know, um, there are people that are pushing on this this hard enough that I think I think currently smartphone performance is great, and I've ta- I've taken photos I know that have gone in reviews, not on my DSLR, but just with you know a smartphone cameras, and nobody's really complained, and I've gotten away with it. You know, like for example, the Windows Phone Eight keynote, I because the SD card reader in the MacBook Pro never works. And um, <laughs> I didn't have my USB cable to do tethered capture. I the mini USB cable. I had to do tethered capture from Galaxy S3 to just cover that event, and that was all done on a smartphone. And I doubt, you know, like we're shooting things that are on the web, so they're like 600 or maybe 1200 pixels wide. So you can get away with it. I think for real serious photography, it's never going to be there. Uh, but at the same time, there is like an artistic element to having noisy, low, low, you know, like very downsampled images. You know, like a lot of the reason Instagram looks good is because it's just downsampling. Everything is 612 by 612. So really, you're, you're just oversampling when you take these huge 8 megapixel, like 3000 by 3200 by 2400 images. So... Yeah, I don't know, like, obviously, you're never going to get around physics, and a real huge sensor is going to integrate a lot more light than a smartphone camera, which has got this, like, tiny little aperture. But at the same time, the performance, I think, is astounding. Like, you could you could use this as your daily driver, like, no problem. And the you other know? big thing is, a lot of this stuff can get better through compute as well, right? So, like... that's Yeah, that's what I'm saying, is that there are a lot of people hammering on that. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really a problem of if it doesn't have to be in real time, yeah, you can make some great images, but then it's a question of, well, how fast can we get that ISP and the surrounding SOC to be able to in real time kind of do all the processing work that needs to be done to clean up this image and and put something together. That's, that's pretty good. Um, so anyone who says that, you know, smartphone SOCs are fast enough today. Um, this is a huge area where, where there's always room for improvement. Yeah, and there are a lot of crazy people that I respect that are just not willing to compromise, even with things like all the cameras have a bump, you know, like the package is thick. It becomes like the single largest industrial design thing you have to go around other than the battery and antennas. And they're just not willing to compromise with that anymore. So they're going to they're going to throw everything they can at this problem. And these are like smart people, way smarter than I am. And they're just they're not happy so it's going to change the the issue i have um is my hands aren't the most stable so anything that has uh, a long exposure time looks really shaky but i did see i did see a video um photoshop with uh, adobe with intel they demonstrated some sort of fancy software where no matter how shaky the picture was oh the software, no the that so- thing you know what I'm talking about. It's um, they analyze just how shaky the picture is, and then sort of regress back to a non-shaky image. I I ranted to Anand about this too, didn't I? I know this yes. is the demo that they sort of like faked. So they oh right they had seed data. They already knew what they can vault. So basically, when you're shooting a picture like that, you 
basically the the challenge is you get a vector or you're trying to figure out what was the vector that i moved the, the camera field exactly well imagine like just like a point that's in the center of the field of view like that where that moved and what i integrated over when shooting the picture so that's that's the challenge the math the math to do to do the the deconvolution to get back to the unblurry image is has been like a solved problem for 30 years you know so like they basically they knew they knew what the vector was and then it's very easy to deconvolve and just get this like perfect looking image like minus some ringing like the, the image has lot, lots of ringing you know, is it, is it is it like a reverse Gaussian blur or something? So I mean, that's another the defocus thing is another thing, right? That's another yeah. It's just it's just like a simple convolution. Like actually, one of my homeworks was to do this along <laughs> like two two or three years ago. So when I saw this demo, I was like, oh, okay, I know exactly what they're doing. And then it turned out that oh, we just like we had a seed that was our like our basically our shaking vector. And we fed it in there, and then the image that came out is perfect, and all the photographers in the room are just like, oh my god, this is insane. But, so I mean, uh, like, so the performance there was sort of an ideal case. In reality, if you don't have, if you don't have that seed data, it's not going to be that great. Like, it's not going to be as perfect. But here's the mitigation that I really want, and that's you augment, when you, when you take the photo, um, in addition to capturing a buffer of all the images, which is sort of done, just use that closed loop and also integrate over the both the um the accelerometer and you know the other sensors you know like do your sensor fusion and get try to get this vector out then stick it in exif and then you can do like all sorts of computational magic and back out like here's here's a really you know like maybe it will have some ringing but here's a really close approximation to what the image would have looked like had you not moved at all you know, so people yeah, that, need to like, makes be pushing on the sense. camera OEMs to like get off their lazy arses and start including <laughs> some like MEM sensors. So like all this is already it's done deal in the smartphone, but like you're never gonna get that in a DSLR. Like we still don't have GPS in a DSLR, right? Like so that's why I'm saying the real crazy people are all in the smartphone space and. Um, they're the ones that are just going to hammer on this problem, and then the smartphone will have performance that's close to like maybe a low-end DSLR, like a micro four-thirds sort of like mirrorless system. And then you get to the point where, well, I don't really like the DSLR will never go away, neither will any of these other formats. But that's when it just things get crazy. But yeah, you can that's... do you can do the defocus correction too, um, but you can't you can't correct for every point in the field like the defocus is in the blur it's it's a different aberration entirely you know that's why whenever when i see like these photos and everybody like adds folk fake bouquet you know like they just like they make a mask then they do the gaussian blur and the gaussian blur is weighted by the mask you know what i'm saying and then they're like this yeah. is fake bouquet like it looks so pretty to me i'm like i instantly know that's a gaussian blur and it's not like defocus um, you know uh, I think I lost you when you said, hi, my name's Brian. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyways, this is like what Anon has to put up with this because I just like open up a feed of this. Like there's this no one else is, to I... talk to about this like other than my friends and they're like, we're just tired of hearing about it. No, I, you know? I think this is hilarious. Like I, because <laughs> you go on, you go on these rants and, and you, you know, I, in the last podcast, I, I mentioned how you operate on just a completely different level. When it gets to optics stuff, 
you can't be more that statement cannot be more true right like you the level oh, there are of way optical, smarter people than i am though that are just out there talking about this they just don't no, write or they they, you know. they always are right there's always people that are smarter than everyone right but the point is that your assumption for the optics knowledge of a lot of the people you talk to is like an order of magnitude greater than when it, where it actually is which is what makes it's this a, so hilarious. I love listening to this stuff. No, I think it's awesome. It's, I think it's great. Yeah, but that Photoshop demo, I, I just, like, I felt like it was faked a little bit. Like, they sold it like magic is going to happen. And again, even in the best case, what are the boundary conditions on that image, right? Like, your car, the, the vector uh, is, you know, like, there's images at the edges that, uh, there's portions at the edges that I can't, you know, like um, deconvolve over to get back the original data. You know what I'm saying? This is always the problem in any image processing is what are the boundary conditions of the image? Because I can't sample everywhere. Like I can't sample infinite. You know, like ultimately it has to be like this little, this little like grid. It's a little, yeah, like I'm constrained. Extrapolating outside the image is pointless. Yeah, so you do this really crappy thing and you like set... The boundary, so like plus one pixel off the right boundary is actually my left or something, and that's where you get ringing. So, but... Yeah, you get this issues with um, matrix calculations. Yeah, you know about this stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, um, anyways, but the Photoshop demo was like an ideal case, but... Well, I, I, I was impressed by the Photoshop demo, but thanks for correcting me. <laughs> no, it, I'm not correcting, it's just... <laughs> I just like they they sort of like they got back out what they put in. Well, it's it's um it, it, if this this process, you know, it could be done with phones, is it that computationally difficult that it would drain my phone battery? I don't think so. I mean, already you can do HDR and that's like seconds of neon. So, I mean, it's going to use more power, sure, but I don't think it's necessarily going to drain it. You know, or the other thing is you ship this off to the cloud and then it gets done and it comes back. Like Apple's thinking is very device centric. All this stuff can just be done for free by somebody else. That's true. Uh, interesting. So you would just like take the photos and as they're syncing with iCloud or, or SkyDrive or whatever your cloud-based photo stuff is, they would just get cleaned up there. That's one way to do it. I don't know if that's necessarily going to sell. Like the big battle is who's... Whose CPU does that sell? Like, obviously, Apple's motivation. And I see, I see this understanding online that they're very device-centric, but I don't see the thought process going one level further, and that's because they want to sell the device, like they're a device company, and they also yes. want to sell their CPU, whereas yes. everybody else has different motivations. Like, Google's motivation is, we want this all in our, like, massive data mine for whatever nefarious things, not nefarious, but whatever, you know, like, things we're going to do. And then that sells CPUs for Intel, right? Like those are yeah. Xeons at the end of the day, as opposed to A6s. Yep. But the, the, the issue also is if you send photos to the cloud, um, I mean, how many photos are taken on the 5 million pre-order iPhones or however million iPhones there are, are in the market? You know, if you've, if you've got a system where people are uploading 3 million images a second. Oh, well, PhotoStream already does some of that. Like you don't need necessarily lots of images. You just need one or... Maybe having more might help a little bit, plus no, the but, exif uh, data. I mean, I mean, more people just battling the system with uh, insurmountable bits of data. I mean, which companies can actually handle that amount of images and data? Facebook, Google. 
I mean, my take yeah. on it is I, I would I do like to have processing done locally. Like it's a very efficient way of doing it. Um, and, and the level of compute necessary to do this stuff. Honestly, at some point you can just do it in fixed function, right? Like you can just have a fixed function unit that just does this. Um, yeah, no, I agree. I want it to be local too. Cause I like, I like control over what, you know, what, what's going on. And like, I want to control my own destiny sort of thing. Yeah. You, you have the original and the suggested final. Yeah. But I mean, this could be done anywhere. No, that's I don't very true. think it's a big deal. It's just sort of a philosophical debate that's interesting. But, yeah. So I think those were the two big things I had with the iPhone. Other than, oh, I guess uh, LTE and EVDO, but we, we figured that out. So that's, that's, that's sort of an interesting other case. No, that's true. Um, okay, well, that, that takes us to the end of our outline. Um, and we'll be back in a week. Uh, hopefully by then we'll have this iPhone 5 review done and shipped and, and get ready for the Windows 8 launch, which is coming and, and it's going to be very worrisome from the amount of stuff that's going to be coming in for us to look at. Uh, as always, thank you all for listening and thank you all for reading the site. Um, if you got any feedback, please do leave it in the comments. Um, and at the same point, if you have anything wonderful to say to uh, Brian, Ian, um, please leave positive comments as well. Those are... Uh, uh, those always help us get through the days easier, I think. Um, so oh, for that's sure, all for yeah. me. Awesome. Thank you guys for listening, and uh, you'll catch us again in a week.